we are in, did I miss anything, Troy? I don't think so. Uh, we are in week two of our Come to the Table sermon series. And, and last week was, I know in the bulletin it may say the second cup, um, because last week I was supposed to do the first cup, but on Sunday morning God goes, hey, let's do something different. Um, and so we did something different, and we set the table for the next uh, four Sundays. And so we added a little Sunday to it, and, and so today is the first cup. Last week what we talked about in this Come to the Table series is, this is loosely based, the title really is what's based off of um, a book by this guy named Leonard Sweet, which has come to the table. And, and his theory is that um, Christianity, Western Christianity specifically, is uh, an endangered species because we have a reproductive problem, right? We, we are losing people quicker, more quickly than we can um, reproduce them. And, and, and the reason why he suggests this is, and eventually if you stay endangered long enough and, and you die more than you birth, you will become extinct. And the reason he suggests that this is a reality is because we've lost the ability to connect with society today. Because we've lost the ability to speak the language of today's culture. The language of today's culture is storytelling. You can look through social media, you can look across advertisements, you can look everywhere and see that people are selling you stuff and trying to entertain you and trying to connect with you through the telling of stories. But what he suggests is this is where we should shine. Because our native language as Christians is storytelling. This is one gigantic story. It is a beautiful story that begins with creation and it ends with eternity. And in it is a whole lot of stories that can shape us into who we are. But what we've done is we've chaptered and versed it up, right? It, wasn't, it didn't come this way. It didn't come the, the first book of Corinthians, chapter 13. But as you all know, if you've been to any wedding, you always hear 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter of love. Paul didn't write the letter to Corinth and number it and all that kind of stuff. What he did was he had a beautiful letter that flowed wonderfully from chapter 12 into 13. If you read 12 into 13, you're like, I totally get where he's going with this. And then it flows into 14. Why? Because it was a letter. It was a story that he was trying to write. But we have this thing called versitis. It's this, it's this malady this, that, that we, have, we have taken the chapter and verse so literally and made it almost a deity itself that we miss the overarching story, overarching narrative of Scripture. I, I tested you last week, and I'm going to do it again. Most of us will be able to recite a specific verse, John 3.16. Can you recite it? Just everybody say it at one time. It's a little bit longer than y'all were saying. This feels like one of those Chinese movies where they're talking, and they say like a whole long line of things, and it's just like, Sure. You know what I'm saying? The subtitles. That's what it felt like there for me. Right? I mean, you all knew the beginning part of it, and you kind of trailed off at the end of it. What's John 3.15? How about 3.17? Right? Those are equally important verses that tie into the rest of the story that Jesus is telling. And I said, what's the story surrounding John 3.16? It's the story of Nicodemus. And, and Jesus is making a really big point about the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. But we miss it when we just take this one chapter verse mentality. And so what Leonard Sweet suggests is that, that we need to recover the art of storytelling. 
If we are to turn the ship around, if we, are, if we are to capture health and strength again and build numbers in the church, not for our own sake, but because it matters, then we must recapture our native language of storytelling. But we must be very specific about it. We must do it around a table. Because Jesus did a lot of his ministry around a table. In the Gospel of Luke specifically, time and time again, he is using a meal or a table to make a humongous theological statement. He uses those moments where you sit down and you look one another in the eye and you share a meal and you talk to transform the world. We have to recapture this. We have to recapture the table. 60 years ago, the average meal in a home was 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Think about that, right? Today, any guesses? I'm just hearing a bunch of mumbling, to be quite honest. Under 12. Under 12 minutes. That's the average meal in homes around a table. Not, not only that, most families, the majority of families, are lucky to have one meal around a table throughout the week. And those meals, those who, who are likely to have more, most of the time a television is on at the same time. Or they have some sort of device that they are also engaged with rather than engaged with the people around the table, right? It's the whole, hey, would you pass me the salt? Right? Just texting it to your person across the table from you. Oh, pepper too, LOL. <laughs> Don't tell mom this is a horrible dinner, you know, type things. Come in handy. But, but we have this thing where, where we, we've separated ourselves from this form of engagement that Jesus used so effectively. So much so that the average parent spends 38.5 minutes per week in meaningful conversation with their children. We, we've already been in service more than that. So you're done talking to your kids for the week. Right? Some of you have teenagers who are like, thank God, you know. But it, it, it's no wonder that we have kids who are coming out of high school and into college going, I don't know who I am. I'm lost. I'm searching for some sort of truth, some sort of path. And the world is like, man, I will give you a thousand different truths and paths in which to follow. It's no wonder that we have this, this gen, these generations that have no idea who they are and because of it are so depressed because we don't spend time with them. We don't sit around a table and actually engage with one another. Now, I know what some of you are saying. You're like, hey, man, my kids are old. I have kids who have kids. I, I, I live a, a, alone. I was just the two of us now, whatever it is. Jesus did not describe family by blood. Jesus described family by this. I guess he did. It was by his blood. Every time he sat at a table, it was a family meal. Every time he sat at a table, he welcomed everyone to eat with him. Those he disagreed with, those the world had cast aside, whomever. You come sit at my table, you're my family. And so, so those of you who think you do not have a family, uh -uh, look around you. You have a really big one. A really big one who needs to hear your voice, who needs to hear your wisdom. Because 
I have a 13-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Some of you have made it through that land, and you have wisdom to share with me. You have your own stories to tell me of how you did it right and how you did it wrong. Where those third rail is, there are, and where I need to back away from, right? Some of you are just about to enter into the land of children. God help you. You need all of us to surround you and have a meal and say, it's going to be okay. Even when, oh, I know, tubes, ear tubes, ah, there's nothing about those. Right? We need to sit down at a table and have these conversations, but we don't. A study went on um, that, that he cites in his book uh, to say, that, say this, the number one factor for parents raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, intelligent, kind human beings, the number one factor is frequent family dinners. The number one shaper of vocabulary in younger children, even more than any other family event, including purposeful play, frequent family dinners. The number one predictor of future academic success for elementary age children better than John 3.16. One of the best safeguards against childhood obesity, frequent family dinners. The best prescription to prevent eating disorders among adolescent girls, frequent family dinners that exude a positive atmosphere. The variable most associated with lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18 year olds, frequent family dinners. If you don't think family dinners are important, I can read those again especially the last one. They are so imperative to the story that we tell our kids. Why? Because they are the moment, those moments are the first time that we have the opportunity to tell the story about who those kids are. That is the best time when you sit down and you take all digital things away and you look them in the eye and you begin to tell them their story as told through you and their grandparents, and their great-grandparents, and even him. These are the moments, and this is the foundation. This is the time over and over again so that when they get through the gauntlet of junior school and high school and college, they walk out into the world going, I know who I am. I am a child of God. The table is so imperative for us. It's so important. In fact, we, we're launching something at the end of this series called Table Groups. And table groups are a t it's part of our small groups initiative. Small groups are so important to the life of the church. We just started the new semester last week. But the table groups are going to be something that we are trying to, to gather together families. Because small groups are generally, uh, they, they revolve around, um, you know, all men's group or an all women's group or young couples or, or, or people who like to go ride bikes or something like that. And whatever it is, it's, it's like a segregated type of group. And that's okay for those instances. But these table groups, we want them to be multi-generational. We want them to be folks who are, who are much older and then, and then little bitties that come in that you just get to, to hug on and shake and then give back to their parents. It's the best thing in the world, right? We want these things to be to be moments where you gather around as family. You share a meal together. You look one another in the eye and you share stories. You share those formative stories about who you are. We're going to give you some help and help you guide you into how to do this. And we think it's an every other week kind of thing, not an every, every week deal. And we have some families who have, who have graciously said we're going to host 
and we're going to open up our home, and, and they may already have a, a full home, and so we're looking for other families who are like, you know what, this sounds awesome. Get together every other week, have some spaghetti and some wine, and sit down around a table and share some stories. I'm in, right? We did this on Friday night with the staff to kind of test bubble. We're going to start doing it um, with, with, with us, and we, we invited the spouses, and we invited the kids, and and we met over at, um, at a, a, a step, my favorite staff member's house. She's totally my, and they all know it. They all know she's my favorite staff member. She does the most work, and I pay her nothing. Um, she is, I, I offer to double her salary all the time, and uh, she doesn't take it. But so we met over at their house, and, and it, was, it was such a fun time, and they had pizza, and it was not, no pressure. Like, it was just Julian's, who doesn't like a little bit of Julian's, right? So we had some Julian's pizza up in there, and, and they make their own beer, what? I know. I'm like, I'm going over there again tonight. They don't know it. They just heard me say it, though. They're in the room. So we're going to go back over and have some lawnmower, you know. Um, and, and, they, and, you know, we just came together, and they had some appetizers, and we talked. At one point, there were a couple of little rugrats in there. This guy, little George and Preston. And, and they're, they're like this tall and this tall, respectively, right? So they're little. And they're running around, and they're doing what little boys do going insane like especially when you like give them a little sugar they're like yeah and they're just running around they're running laps through this house the house is set up where you can right run a lap like dining room living room kitchen sunroom family room dining room living room like every now and just screaming and playing tag and all that stuff and you could see their dad just getting more and more tense He's just getting tenser and tenser and tenser. And he's a big fella. I mean, like, he makes me look a little small. And I'm like, he's about to blow. And sure enough, the next lap through, George! And he starts going over there. He's this big old German dude. George, press it. Stop it. And I went, hey, 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 hey. Don't you talk to my kids like that. That is what they're supposed to do right now. They're not hurting anybody. As soon as we've seen a chair, a chair fly across a room, then we'll call timeout. Until then, just let them be, right? That's what it's about is these kids who know that I've got their back against their dad, right? Like if, and I'm serious about that. If they ever, and they're older, and one of them gets into a car wreck, I want them to call me first so I can then go with them to their dad. <laughs> they're okay. We know that we've screwed up, you know? They need people who support them and love them and encourage them no matter the decisions they make. And that's what these kind of groups are for. That's what the table is for, to, to surround and to share those stories, those formative stories, so that those kids, our kids, know that they are loved and that they are a child of God. You know, and the story that you tell is the same story. It's the story that Jesus told every single time. It's the story that Paul used to the people of Colossa and to Ephesus. It's the story that, that every Jew says every year around Passover when they sit down and they have the same meal that Jesus had the night he was betrayed, the Seder meal. And they tell the story that comes from Exodus. In the story, God says this. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will free you from your oppression. And I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. And I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people. And I will be your God. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this story, this formative story, this is the foundational story of everything else that will come. 
Because this story sets out the four cups of what Jesus talks about time and time again. It sets out the beginning of, of the people of Israel. And, okay, previously in the nation of Israel, right? If you don't know what's happening in the nation of Israel, they've been in Egypt for 400 years and they're slaves. It's not going well for them. In fact, it's going very, very poorly for them. They're a beat down, very prolific, but beat down society. They're a nation who just gets tranced on time and time again, but they were a threat because of how many of there were. And so if you remember, Pharaoh lights up this order and he goes, look, every baby boy that is born, drown him in the Nile River. There were death sentences given to these people just for being born. Their backs were breaking in the labor. And they cry out to God. God, we can't take any more. Free us. We've had too much. Get us out of here. And God sees this guy named Moses. And he says, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Let's take the people out. You remember the story. And I'm condensing it quite a bit. The ten plagues, this huge thing. Pharaoh says, let, or Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And time and time again. And then they get to the moment where, where Pharaoh finally says, just go. Just go. And the people of Israel, they, they start leaving and they go and they, and they get to the Red Sea. But at this point, you know, the, the, the army of Pharaoh is chasing them. And he chases them down. And, and they're like, here's the Red Sea. Here's the, here's the army. What are we going to do? And, and God says, Moses, raise up your hands. And he does. And, and the sea parts. And the people of Israel walk over on dry ground. Y'all, I don't know if you've ever seen a flood. When that water departs after a flood, it's not dry. It's nasty. We flood down in Seguin all the time. The Guadalupe raises its ugly head, and when it leaves, there's like dead fish and just mud, and you're just like, <laughs> like that through the mud, right? They walk through on dry ground. They get on the other side, and then Moses pulls his hand down, and, and, the, Mo, and, and the chariots and, and the Pharaoh have come in behind them, and they're chasing them down, and, and they get stuck in mud that wasn't there just a second ago. What? And all of a sudden, the water comes down, and, and the nation of Egypt is gone. Do you remember what the Israelites do? They break out the tambourine. Miriam, Moses' sister, breaks out the tambourine and they go, yeah, Jesus! I don't say Jesus because he hasn't come yet, but they get, you get it, right? They, 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 they shout to God because God has brought them from slavery into freedom. See, that's the first cup. He says, I will free you from, I will free you. I will take you out. I will set you apart. I will, and here's a big word for you, hold on. I will sanctify you. I will make you holy. This is the first cup, and this is the first cup that we get to share with our kids, that we get to share with one another as we sit around a meal together. Let me tell you about this first cup, son. You're not like everybody else, because you're holy, you're set apart, you're chosen by God. Let me tell you, that, that doesn't mean, if you, if you know the rest of the story of the people of Israel, doesn't always go well for them, does it? They, they don't always get it right, but they are always set apart. See, that's what Jesus is reminding us at the Last Supper. He offers us this cup, and he, he said, this is my blood. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Every, every time I come to communion, I, I, I think these words that, that Jesus says to me. This is everything that I am. Will you be one with me? Right, he's just offering this to me. This is everything that I am. Will you be one with me? 
This is the cup that we need to teach our kids. This is the first cup. This is that cup where you get to taste what it feels like to be chosen. And let me tell you, not a single person on this earth doesn't qualify to drink from this first cup. Not a single person in this room is not invited to sip from this first cup, to experience what it feels like to know the freedom and the power and the grace of Jesus. When he says, no, 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 that's who you were, but that's not who you are. Because you're my son, you're my daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but do you know what I've done? Uh Uh-huh. And yet still, I love you. And I'm willing to give my life for you. See, when you have this, this hope, see what Jesus did when he gave his life up for us. Remember, we talked about this a few series ago, that, that the reason the Bible is written is not because Jesus lived. It's not even because he died. It's because he came back to life. That was the moment when people were like, uh, somebody better write this down. Because he called his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. And when you do that, you pay attention to what he says. And what he says is, I have come to give my life so that you may have yours. Because you and your life are going to choose your way time and time again. You're gonna choose separation from God. And every time you do that, that leads to hurt, it leads to pain, it leads to struggle, and it leads to death. So I'm gonna offer you a different way. I'm gonna offer you a way that comes to life. I'm gonna offer you a way that is you're cleansed through my blood. I'm gonna offer you this way When you accept it, when you taste of this cup, man, I'm not saying you won't ever have struggles, you won't ever have heartache, but you'll walk through them different because you will know in those times of darkness that there is light. You will know in those times of pain and suffering that there is joy, that there is grace. You know that those relationships that are broken can be restored. You know that that addiction you're suffering can be broken off of you. Somebody better say hallelujah up in this joint in a second or I'm gonna slap some people. Thank you, sweet girl, whoever that was. Yes. I mean, maybe you're not connecting with what I'm laying down here. Maybe you're not smelling what the crock is cooking. Thank you. That was only for six o'clock crowd, man. Hey, the early folks don't get this, all right? This is Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. Let me tell you. My son and my daughter need to hear this every day. Because they're moving into a world that I don't understand. They're going into a world that looks scary to me. I I heard somebody my age the other day go, man, I'm glad I'm not young. I don't think I could take it. I said, amen, brother. I don't understand how they deal with all the stuff they have to deal with. And so when they go into that world, I want them to know who they are. Not just from a Crocker standpoint, but from the family of God standpoint. I want them to know, and I say this to Corbin periodically, I'll go and I'm tucking him in bed, I'm like, hey buddy, can you do anything to ever make me stop loving you? No. Roll your eyes one more time, let's try that out, right? Can you do anything to ever make God stop loving you? No, sir. That's right. Because when he's in your heart, you accept that gift and that freedom. You're in the family. Families fight for one another. 
and families stand up for one another and families drag each other through kicking and screaming if we have to to the other side. Families say we will not stay in Egypt any longer because Egypt sucks and there's life on the other side of the sea. So we're going to the other side. Paul says it this way. He says, we were persecuted, but we were not destroyed. We were crushed, but we got back up again. We suffered all of these different things, but they did not hold us back because we move forward knowing that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have an eternal hope that these people don't understand and they can't touch. And when you have that hope, you can go out and face giants. Some of you in this room, maybe, maybe you're stuck in the land of versitis. Some of you maybe have been coming to church your entire life and, and you see it as rules and religion and regulations. Let me tell you, God, is, God could care less about religion. I'm glad you're sitting down for this. God is not in the religion business, that's man. God's in the relationship business. He wants to be a part of you. He's like, no, no, no. I don't want you just to, to be surface and intellectual with me. I want you to be real with me. Could you imagine if your relationship, if you're married and all you ever have is just an intellectual moment with your spouse? All you ever have is a surface relationship where you just talk about the mundane things. What would it be like if, if there's no passion, right? Passion is what drives it forward. 19 years, a few weeks ago, baby, come on, still going, Crockers. She's not even in the room and I can talk about her. That's how good she is, right? It, it, we'll, we'll do a relationship series later. Some of you are going, uh, I don't have passion, you know? Jesus doesn't want us to go through the motions with him. He wants us to be passionate. He wants us to stand up on our feet and go, I love Jesus, I know him. That's my dog. He gave us a he gave his life for me. And if you've never experienced that before, if, you, if you're sitting out there and you're part of that frozen chosen, you're like, oh, I know Jesus. I, I've been coming to church since I was a kid. I come in and I sit down and I even usher sometimes. Went to Sunday school, went through confirmation. You know the, you know the uh, recidity rate? Is that the recidity? You know how many confirmands come back to church? Very few. It's ironic, there's a couple in the room tonight, but. Very few of them ever come back once they go through confirmation. There's a pastor's joke about how do you get rats, how do you get rats out of a church building? You confirm them. You'll never see them again. Because we haven't properly told the story. We haven't really properly told the story to our confirmands. We haven't properly told the story to our little ones. We haven't properly told the story to the adults for generations so much so that people don't have the fire anymore. That people don't know what it feels. He died for you. I'm not willing to go to H-E-B at nine o'clock in the night for you. He died for you. I'm gonna do something, I've done it every service and, and it's made people weirded out and uncomfortable and it's just how I roll. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads. And some of you right now are going, oh my gosh, will he ever wrap up? Eventually. Some of you right now are wondering, can, can I leave in the middle of his sermon? But some of you might be hearing a little whisper from the Spirit. 
Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Lydia and, and it was this, the Holy Spirit drawing her in, going, hey, Lydia, you're ready now. You're ready now. It wasn't Paul that brought her into an understanding of who Jesus was. He'd laid the foundation, but it was, it was God pulling her in. And so somebody might be hearing those words and maybe you've been somebody who's come to church your whole life, but you're like, you know what? I wanna be crazy like Crocker is. I wanna stand up in front of people and raise my hands and tap my feet and exalt thee. I want to let people know that my life is changed because of who Jesus is. And maybe you're saying, I want to feel my life changed. And so if you're in a place right now where you wanna say this prayer, I just want you in your hearts to say this prayer. Jesus, I love you. I thank you for your life. I thank you for your death. And I thank you that you did not stay dead. Instead, you rose again. And you give me this gift and this offer of life. So God, I don't wanna run my life anymore. I'm tired and I'm hurt and I'm broken and it's not working out for me. I wanna give the keys over to you. Jesus, take control of my life. I give my life to you. I give my heart to you. Thank you, Jesus. If you just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you just made that, that prayer for the first time, if you would just raise your hand so I can see because I, I, I wanna know because I wanna pray for you and I wanna be with you. Yes, you can put them back down. Jesus, I thank you for these people. I thank you so much for their willingness and their courage to say, no longer will I live the way that I have been living because it's not working. Instead, I want that abundant life that you have offered me. So God, I pray your blessing upon these folks. I pray that you would shower them with your love. I pray that you would surround them with people who get who you are and can bring them along the path with you. God, I thank you for them. I thank you for everybody who maybe is just on this edge of saying this prayer and about to do it, or, or, or God, I thank you for those folks who today, they've said this prayer 70,000 times, and today was 70,001, and yet they still have passion and fire for you. God, I thank you for this. I thank you for your life. I thank you for your death, but most importantly, Father, thank you for that resurrection. I thank you for the fact that you could not stay dead because you didn't want us to stay dead either. I thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name, amen. The ushers are coming forward right now and we're gonna stand and worship one more time. And I know I've gone over time, get over it. You'll get over it. It's hot, man. It is so hot up here. I am sweating like I stole something. But the spirit is moving and God is good. And when God is moving, man, he brings some heat and some fire. Better the fire of the Holy Spirit than the fire of damnation. Am I getting get an amen? God, we ask that you would bless this offering as we bring it to you. I thank you for the generosity of this church and I pray that as we give back to you, that you would receive it and that through this offering, people may know that they're loved by you. People may, even for the first time, taste that first cup, that cup of sanctification, knowing that they are set apart from the world, holy and loved by you. God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.